Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the recent ruling from a federal judge finds DACA unlawful and blocks new applicants. I'll speak with local immigration attorney Sarah Owens. And later in the program, we'll hear about a workforce program providing support for those formerly incarcerated. But first, this U.S. infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, CDC Director Rochelle, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, and other health officials were front and center today in Washington, D.C. The Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee held a hearing on the federal government's COVID-19 response. Democratic Senator Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico asked Dr. Walensky about outreach to Hispanic communities, despite being the less hesitant vaccine group. I think we need to use culturally appropriate messaging in all of our uh, vaccination efforts, and not just in our vaccination efforts, in all of our healthcare efforts. We have we have uh, our vaccination toolkits are available in more than 20 languages, um, so it has to work in the vaccination of the Hispanic community, but also many of our other harder-to-reach communities. And yes, I, we are continuing to do outreach by trusted messengers in their own language in culturally sensitive ways. In COVID-related misinformation news, Georgia Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account is suspended. According to Twitter, Greene's account was temporarily suspended on Monday due to tweets of COVID-19 misinformation. And that violates Twitter's COVID-19 misinformation policy. Green tweeted the coronavirus was not dangerous for non-obese people and those under 65 and that should not force non-FDA approved vaccines or masks on people. And the Georgia representative also tweeted there have been 6,000 vax-related deaths. Of course, that is not true. Green's Twitter suspension was only for 12 hours, so she should be right back at it. And speaking of Twitter, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is using social media to address vaccinations. Kemp released a video urging unvaccinated Georgians to consider getting vaccinated. Here in Georgia, as we've seen across the country, cases are going up post-July 4th holiday We're also seeing hospitalizations start to rise. The patients that we're seeing in the hospitals are predominantly people that are not vaccinated. This is a great opportunity for you to talk to your medical professional, your local pharmacist, other people you trust about making a good health care decision for you and whether to get vaccinated or not. By the way, that noise you heard was from the governor's video, not us. Anyway, Kemp went on to say he's vaccinated as well as his family. As of right now, according to the State Department of Public Health, Georgia's fully vaccination rate is 39 percent. Finally, more than a quarter of Georgia small businesses say getting back to normal operations will take more than six months. 
That's according to a latest census survey. The Small Business Pulse Survey measures how COVID has affected companies across the country. In Georgia, about 27 percent of small businesses indicate they'll still need more than a half year to recover from the pandemic. Georgia's percentage is slightly better than a national average, as well as some states in the Northeast and in the West. The census also measures how individuals have fared during the pandemic. And that survey also revealed nearly 20 percent of people in metro Atlanta say they expect someone they live with to lose income from a job in the next four weeks. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to the American Immigration Council, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, also known as the DACA program, has helped roughly 825,000 undocumented young adults to work and attend school without the threat of being deported. But it's also clear, since introduced in the Obama administration, the DACA program is in need of a permanent legislative fix. Now, last year, in a 5-4 vote, the U.S. Supreme Court blocked then-President Trump's plan to end the program completely. And most recently, federal judge Andrew Hannon ruled the program was unlawful, prohibiting the federal government from approving new DACA applications or grant new applicants the protections that DACA provides. Now, Sarah Owens is a local immigration attorney and founder of Owens McNorland Immigration Law. She's been on this program many times. She joins me now to provide an analysis and also some insight on what this really means and what's to come. Uh, Sarah, as always, welcome back. I appreciate you taking the time, or Attorney Owens, I should say. Hi, Rose. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, before we dig deeper into this later latest federal decision, let's talk about the last, let's say, 16 months and, and how the pandemic has affected the immigration status of cases in your firm, if it has? What's it been like? As far as how things have gone in my firm, it's been kind of nuts. Um, I'm a removal defense practitioner primarily. And as you know, of course, the courts are largely shut down. um, And that resulted in me working pretty much exclusively on detained migration cases. So people who are in the detention centers here in Georgia and other places. Um, And it's really has affected me, Rose, I have to say. It's been a very tough year dealing with people who've been confined in plague-infested concentration camps, for lack of a better word, attempting to get out. And that work is ongoing. So we know that the the courts, uh, most of them halted in a sense. Were you able to do any of this online, virtually, for the clients that you all are representing? Or did it just come to a complete shutdown for a moment? 
for a moment, it was completely shut down. And then the courts did reopen on a very limited basis. Judges could have, you know, a case in the morning, a case in the afternoon, and that's it, just to limit the number of people in these federal buildings. Um, and that meant that you couldn't process new cases, you know, the kind of large scale uh, calendar hearings where you'd have lots of people in the room. That obviously is not a good idea under COVID. So um, it's it's been slow and we have had some of those cases processed through and it is opening up. We're having more now. And um, the government has made some strides in getting WebEx technology and making it possible for people to attend things remotely um, with mixed results. I don't always love that. I don't love it when people are inside of detention centers mm -hmm. and not allowed to appear and have their day in court. But that's it. That's, I could go on for hours about this, about this particular topic. <laughs> well, Attorney Owens, I'm also curious uh, to your knowledge, based on what you were able to you all were able to to prove is, is true. Did many or some of or any of your your clients or the cases were they in um, detention centers or situations where there was a covid outbreak or they contracted the virus in that environment? Uh Yes, yes. I've had multiple clients who have uh, tested positive for COVID. Um, I've had multiple clients go through rounds of quarantine, um, people who haven't been able to get masks or, you know, uh, early on were using socks for their PPE um, to make their masks. And, um, and in general, yet yeah, some of the stories I've heard are really, really troubling out of those detention centers. And that, that continues to be a problem. You said they were using socks as masks. Yes, the the migrants would make their own masks out of socks when they weren't given given masks um, in the early parts of the pandemic. Did you all inquire about that? I, I take it you did, maybe. Oh yes, many many times. There's been ongoing litigation around. I mean, think about the people in detention who might be at high risk for COVID. Um, there's been litigation around that issue since the beginning of the pandemic, that actually even predates the pandemic, just regarding. ADA compliance for people who are uh, detained in these detention centers and whether or not they get reasonable accommodations. Let's move to this latest federal ruling. Were you, first of all, you're, were you surprised at, at the judge's ruling, this latest ruling here? Given the source, given that it's Judge Andrew Hainan mm -hmm. uh, from Texas, I was not surprised by the outcome here because he has not been a friend to uh, to migrants or, um, you know, anyone who's putting forth a, a pathway um, to temporary protections for individuals who are here without documentation. The judge, in a sense, said that the Obama administration did not use the right legal procedure to create the program, making it illegal. And someone listening says, well, if that was part of what the judge viewed, it does not affect those current individuals with the DACA status, correct? That is correct. So the individuals that currently have DACA will have their status preserved at least on a temporary basis. And that is about 616,000 people by current estimates that are, un are currently enrolled in the DACA program. Um, this issue is going to affect people who are current applicants, so people who've applied right now and the new applications going forward. Um, and that's been hard because when uh, when Biden came into office and the DACA program was reopened, you know, that's one of the very first steps he took on mm -hmm. 120. He issued a, um, you know, a policy about, um, you know, reestablishing DACA and trying to fortify it. And um, so people began applying. And some of those applications are, of course, in process right now. Um, and those individuals, this decision was passed Friday. Those individuals rose 
on Sunday began receiving text message notifications that the uh, fingerprint appointment, so their next step in the process um, to go and get their biometrics done, check their background, make sure that they uh, are who they say they are, that they don't have anything in their criminal history that disqualifies them um, from accessing this program, you know, things that would make them a, a priority for, for deportation and, and that kind of process. Those folks got these text messages saying, don't come. You don't have an appointment anymore. It's been canceled. Um, and so that caused a lot of panic and confusion for people who were getting that notification and you know unclear about where they were in the process. Like, do I get to, to do this? I paid my almost $500 for this this case and, um, you know, maybe more in legal fees. And um, I've, I've got it in the hopper and finally qualified, but now maybe I don't. But these were for the individuals who were already had already started the process, not for those who were seeking to be, who were, in a sense, were, were going to be new applicants. These are folks who were already in the process. And so now these text messages, which came from U.S. Immigration, Yes, from from the Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. What does that signal to you? That signals to me that it's going to be um, another problem. And this probably will be something subject to litigation when you have a class of people who applied, um, paid money, paid a fee for for these benefits and um, were going through the adjudication process and now might not be able to access it. I don't know that the government's going to issue refund checks to folks in that status because typically they they have not uh, done so in the past. And these are also individuals, although they may be with an undocumented status, but some many working that's correct. Paying, paying, that's paying taxes. That's correct. And so I think that's one of the things about the judge's ruling. Um, the, the way that they did this, the way that the judge reached this conclusion was that Texas and other states that were kind of conservative states, there's eight states that brought this lawsuit, um, had an interest in whether or not the DACA program exists, because if it exists, you have people who would have employment authorization um, that could then compete with American workers for jobs. But the thing is that DACA has been in existence for a decade at this point, you know, almost. We're coming up on a 10-year anniversary next year of DACA. And these are people who are already working. These are people who already pay taxes. These are people who are already in, in the United States and contributing to society. So what we're talking about is the loss of employees. We're talking about a loss to corporations, to businesses, to small businesses that will have to, again, find new employees. Um, and it's kind of ironic to me that this is coming on the heels of this um, sort of cycle of news about how there's employers that cannot find workers, right? We're kind of struggling in the, the um, in overcoming the pandemic to get people into jobs. And so now you have a willing, able um, uh, you know, class of folks that could come in and do these jobs or are doing these jobs, but may in fact not be, be able to based on a ruling like Judge Hanen. And attorney... Owens, what are you hearing from the folks you all have been helping, their families, those who are now, in a sense, in this holding pattern? What concerns do you have about them and, and, and what they'll do or how they might react to this? I, I always say that immigration law has the shelf life of milk, right, because it changes so frequently. And this is another situation in which it means that you're going to have to go back and look at all the cases. We're having to talk to people and see what other options are on the table. How long will this protect you? What can we do? Um, what what other moves can we make? And then, of course, we're all turning our eyes towards Congress, because the thing is that Judge Hanen says in this decision, you know, Congress could fix this. That's the whole problem is that we need a congressional law. We need we need legislation. 
in order to protect these people because it was not inside of Congress's intent to protect these people under the existing law. It doesn't, it does not contemplate it is what they're saying. So that, that gives me some hope, but of course I'm very skeptical. We had a bill that would actually cover um, everybody in, in the DACA program that was passed in the House, um, I think it was March 18th, that we, we had that legislation passed and now it's languishing in the Senate because of course the Senate cannot seem to get an agreement on what to have for breakfast, let alone uh, what to do regarding immigration reform. So we'll see if they can move on that, they could end this problem. Um, hopefully they're brave enough. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Sarah Owens, a local immigration attorney and founder of Owens McNorland Immigration Law. We're talking about the recent ruling from federal judge Andrew Hainan, uh, calling the program the DACA program unlawful and prohibiting the federal government from approving new DACA applications or even granting new applicants the protections that DACA provides. Uh, attorney Owens, when for someone listening, it says, okay, but if someone, let's say, is stopped for a traffic procedure, because this new ruling, because not everyone may understand this new ruling, could the, could they be subject to some type of immediate deportation removal process to begin? So if you have employment authorization and you have a driver's license, you should be okay. There should not be a way for um, a police officer to go and look beyond that because you are mm-hmm. legally authorized to be here. This is more a question for people who have not received that documentation yet, who are in process. Um and and hoping to obtain it who who may qualify but then can't if that happens you know the the good news is that we with georgia you know changing blue and some of the changes that we've seen like within gwinnett and cobb county um those those jurisdictions are not wanting to engage in 287g stops so those stops that allow uh local police and law enforcement agents to kind of check your immigration status and then and then pass you off to ice uh, we're seeing less of that, which is is good because, in, in my opinion, it's good anyway, um, because it, it leads to less sort of like predicate stops where you might get stopped for having no taillight or just the fact that a cop can tell that you're driving, uh, you know, without a license from 100 yards away. How do they do that? It's kind of magical, their ability to determine that. It, it seems very often it's based on race. Um, and so to, to prevent those things from happening, um, I think we're still covered with the permissions that people have through the program. Well, what is the official status if, if usually you said there's paperwork for the, which allows them for employment, but if they haven't received that or if they're waiting, is there any status, is there anything that they can prove to say, well, listen, I am in the process, and although obviously there's these, these court rulings, what, what, what will folks have to sort of document you know, where they are in all of this? Not much, Rose. Unfortunately, they may have receipt notices if they've already applied. But if you're talking about somebody who was planning on applying, I mean, I can think of one young man that I dealt with who spent um, months trying to establish that he was eligible. We had to do some things in court just to get him in a position where he would be able to apply. And then he had to enroll in a GED program. And so that program started July 7th. So he was not, in fact, able to apply in time to qualify um, and be approved under this this ruling. It's been a long journey from him, and um, you know we're going to have to just keep on fighting the alternate options that we have in his case. That's just you know what we have to do. And meanwhile, as folks come to you all, what are you having to tell them? Do they have questions in all of this? It well it depends on what's going on. Each case is very very fact specific, and um, if you've been told in the past, I would encourage people if they've been told in the past that they don't qualify for immigration benefits, this is still a good time to check because we have finally, uh, in the last maybe eight weeks, started to receive 
the new policies from from the Biden administration and from the new officials that are in place about how they're going to prioritize people for uh, deportation and give them deferred action and other um, other sort of like temporary like let's let's make an orderly line and a process kind of decisions. Um, so there may be more options for people that you may not have had before. And I would encourage people to check into that, uh, not necessarily through DACA, but through mm-hmm. some you know, through other sort of deferred um, uh, prosecution. Uh, and prosecutorial discretion in court. Any ideas, Sarah, and you may know this in terms of Georgia, the, the number of, of those with the current DACA status? I actually do not know that mm-hmm. number off the top of my head. I can check and get back to you. No, it's you okay. Know. I know it's a large but, number, um, like is, most yeah. states. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned, and obviously, and, and President Biden has said that they will appeal this. You are not I, I, obviously going to argue this, but if you had to, then what challenges would you want, would you make to the, so, the Hanan's ruling? Yeah. Okay. So I, I mean, this case will go up through the fifth circuit and then to the Supreme court. And that's not a great position for us, I would say, because that is an extremely conservative circuit and it mm-hmm. could go to the Supreme court after that, if it's denied. And, and if the Supreme court doesn't want to grant cert, that would be the final decision. Um, if we're talking about what they could do to strengthen the position, one of the things that the decision says is that the case, the, the, the DACA program needs to go through the rulemaking process under the Administrative Procedures Act um, and that that was not done. So one of the things that DHS is going to do is going to they're going to create and go through the rulemaking process in order to establish DACA as a, 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 a policy under that process. And that would, in fact, make a stronger position for folks on appeal. Um, if that case has gone through that, then it, it meets the substantive requirements that, that Judge Hainan found that it lacked. Mm. Sarah, as we wrap up, before we wrap up, I want to go back to 2018 on this program. And I spoke with Raymond, Alondra, Marisol, and Sumbul. And I asked them, as children brought to the U.S., I asked them to reflect on their DACA status and also in terms of relationships with their parents. Take a listen to this. Years ago, I used to have this resentment inside of me for... Um, just kind of ha- them having brought me here and us being in this situation and all of the complications that led to us eventually becoming undocumented and how and thinking about how difficult life has been as an undocumented person, especially here in the South. Um, but over the years, I, I've learned through conversations with my parents that they brought me here because they wanted me to have a better life and things just didn't go the way that they planned and um, and I am incredibly thankful for the sacrifices that they made so that I could live here in the United States and be as successful as, as I can be. Alondra? The relationship between me and my parents has been really hard lately. Um, they have been really strict, I guess you could say that, about where I am, where I go, what I'm doing. They're worried about you? They're worried. Mm-hmm. So they're always constantly calling, making sure I'm okay, basically on me 24-7. It's really sad because my mom, when DACA ended and the conversation of, you know, us being bargaining chips for our parents, my mom told me that whatever she has to do to help me, she'll do it. And she said she's okay with being under deportation proceedings. My mom told me that she just wants the best for me and that's one of the reasons why she brought me into this country. Unfortunately, a lot of us here have been to DC and to our face by staffers. We have been told that we are bargaining chips. I had someone apologize to me because that's what I'm currently, that is what I am in DC. And so it's really sad to know that 
my mom is okay with that because I know that it's just a sacrifice that a parent, any parent would make to make sure their child was successful. Simba, give you the last word. My mom is always worried about me. My dad's always worried about me. My friends are worried about me. They tell me to limit my driving, to be careful where I go. My, they didn't know that this was going to happen to us when they brought us here. And I could never go to my parents and tell them that I hate you for trying to give me a better life. I had the opportunity to actually visit Pakistan in 2015 using advanced parole. And I saw the area that they grew up in. And I am entirely grateful for them. Attorney Owens, that was in 2018. Of course, there was a lot that's changed related to DACA. But how often do you, are you still hearing that type of sentiment? I, I hear it from uh, clients and consultations uh, consistently. I also hear it as a steady drumbeat in the news via Twitter. Um, it's funny because I was thinking about Raymond and Marisol and the others and um, how essential their voices have been in this fight. And while they may you know, be told that they're a bargaining chip, they are so fierce and i'm really really proud of them i'm wonderful i'm just just really really impressed that we have these advocates um working on this issue to self-advocate here in georgia and i've watched their careers and what they're doing and they're not people that we want to lose from our community so we need to continue to have this fight and i think that america agrees you know the pew research center did a, a poll and about three quarters of the people that responded to the poll want a pathway to legalization for people that are in the positions of marisol and the others and in that in that case it seems like the thing that we need to do is really advocate. We need to push Congress because if we're all in agreement, then really they are the ones holding up the train. How optimistic are you that, I don't know about this Congress, but maybe that something will get get done, a legislative fix, if you will. Exactly. That's what we hope. Sarah Owens, a local immigration attorney and founder of Owens McNorland Immigration Law. As always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Rose. Talk to you again soon. Be well. Thank you. Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. In July of 2018, the Prison Policy Initiative released a first-of-its-kind report. It estimated unemployment among then 5 million formerly incarcerated people living in the U.S. The results, formerly incarcerated people were unemployed at a rate of over 27 percent higher than the, U- than the total U.S. unemployment rate during any historical period at the time, including the Great Depression. It also revealed, quote, for those who are black or Hispanic, especially women, status as formerly incarcerated reduces their employment chances even more. The report also provided some possible solutions to ensuring work stability. And that's what our next segment is all about. Recently, Greenlit, Greenlight Fund Atlanta announced a multi-year investment in, in the Center for Employment Occupation. Opportunity CEO with a focus on reaching support services for job seekers with past convictions. So joining me now to talk more about this is Jolie Cooper. She's the executive director of the Greenlight Fund Atlanta and ATL site director Michael Taylor. Welcome to you both. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Rose. 
Let's start with that statistic, because I was surprised to find that prior to 2018, there was no data that was around to really focus and reveal just the challenges uh, formerly incarcerated people were met with in terms of finding employment. I mean, because I, I imagine if we had those numbers early on, more initiatives and programs could have been in place. Uh, Jolie, what do you think about that? You know, interestingly enough, when we did our research about how critical this issue was, unemployment amongst African-American men returning from incarceration was 47 percent. So that's even more profound. And so, yeah, the data is there. But through all of the work that we do, I'm always so surprised how little people know in terms of the facts. Hmm. Michael, do you want to add to that? Mike, uh, Mike, I think I need you to, as we say in Zoom, unmute. Yes. uh, Sorry about that, Rose. Uh, Yeah, I would just like to add that Georgia spends more than one billion dollars per year on prison expenditures, uh, equaling about 20000 annually per person. Uh, and just in Atlanta, over 3,000 people return to Metro Atlanta each year. Uh, and the recidivism, recidivism rate is greater than 30 uh, percent. So I would like to add that. And often folks say, well, you know, Georgia, I'm talking about Georgia now, has made some strides, we know, under former Governor Nathan Deal and uh, in, in as he put it under his criminal justice reform, there was some strides made in terms of, you know, ban the box and some other issues. But even from that time to now, uh, Jolie, uh, just your assessment of what still needs to happen overall. Right, right, right. Um, there's no denying it. Georgia is uh, has made great, great progress, but it's still a very punitive state comparing it to other states in the country. And so there needs to be just a recommitment a recommitment to second chances for those returning from incarceration, both men and women. And I think resources have to be uh, put against the issue and that we have to ensure that every single person, every single person coming home from incarceration is lifted up and given equal opportunity. And that's what CEO does. And Michael, before we dig into that, you heard Julie talk about a recommitment. You agree with that, I take it. Uh, definitely. Um, I don't know if you know or not, Rose, but in my bio, it makes it that I went to Morehouse College. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just personally, you know, I believe uh, in making the world a better place. But not only was that reinforced at Morehouse uh, and more importantly, day to day in the work that I'm able to do through CEO uh, and taking a person centered approach that we take uh, in terms of doing this work. A Morehouse man. You all always you, you, you let folks know when you're a Morehouse man, don't you? <laughs> they say, Rose, you can tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. That is true. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's back up a little bit and give our listeners a little education in terms of the backstory of the Green Light Fund Atlanta. How long have y'all been around? Yeah, so the Greenlight Fund officially launched in 2019. And in a nutshell, we are a venture philanthropy fund. We provide startup capital to innovative evidence-based nonprofit organizations. So we were founded in Boston, but we're in 10 cities around the country. And Atlanta was our eighth city. And we invest in community, we invest in innovation, and most importantly, we invest in results. So you all are a, a as you just put it earlier, you are a people-first-centered sort of organization looking to Absolutely. to fund those Absolutely. other organizations that are as we say mm-hmm. maybe on the on the front lines or, or on the ground and helping individuals 
Absolutely. I am a funder, but I am merely a facilitator to the will of the people. And so we've got capital money that we invest in these innovative nonprofits. And it's based on what the community says are the most pressing and urgent issues facing them each and every day. And so when we started this first investment selection process over a year ago, citizen reentry with a focus on employment was lifted up as a, a tremendously important issue. As Michael said, we have over 3,500 returning citizens to Metro Atlanta every single year. Mm -hmm. So we have phenomenal organizations working in this space locally, but there is enough work to go around for innovation. Let me ask you this. What do you all look for in, in a city or a community before you decide that this is the region, this is the area that you want to invest in? Is there, is there some criteria here? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Rose. Thank you so much. We look for opportunity for innovation. We look where there are huge gaps in, you know, economic uh, mobility, where there are huge gaps in, you know, services. So we just launched in Baltimore this year. We're launching in Newark next year. And then Chicago, uh, we're in Charlotte and Cincinnati and Detroit. So we really look at communities that have the opportunity for change. Hmm. Michael, you are the ATL site director. What do you charge with here? Um, yes, yeah, so uh, my goal uh, in uh, being the Atlanta site director uh, is making sure that our uh, participants receive a warm welcome uh, in terms of, one, knowing that we're here. Uh, so that's why it's important uh, that I take uh, opportunities like you presented with me today to let the community know that we are here. Uh, and, again, uh, our mission uh, is to provide immediate, comprehensive, and effective employment opportunity to those returning home from prisons. And that's exactly what I plan to do. Well, let's start with that. For our listeners who are listening, saying that's great, but and you may not have everything laid out, but where do you begin, Michael? Yes. Um, so um, just for starters, uh, our model uh, is focused on reducing recidivism uh, and increasing employment. Uh, and it consists of four key pillars. Uh, and the first one uh, is our job readiness uh, training. Uh, mm -hmm. We call it our pathway to employment. Uh, and for anyone who's interested uh, in that, uh, they will reach out to us to sign up uh, to get enrolled in our what we call P2E. Mm -hmm. uh, they will work with uh, our P2E instructor, uh, Ms. Tanika Smith. Uh, she's our frontline of defense. Uh, and she's the first person uh, that will introduce uh, potential participants to our program. So job readiness, what's next after that? Uh, so then uh, once you've completed that pathway to employment training role, uh, this is our cherry on top. Uh, we immediately enroll our participants into our transitional employment uh, phase in which they are working on a transitional work crew. Uh, they work up to four days a week. Uh, that day that they're off, they're meeting with a job coach or the business account manager uh, who's working with them to secure a full-time opportunity. Uh, but, Rose, I want to point out that we pay our participants daily, mm -hmm. uh, and we take them to and from work every single day that they are off. Let's get, to, let's get to that third phase, too. Let's let our listeners know all these phases. So yeah. job readiness and then the, the employment, the, the uh, transitional, what's next after that? Yeah, so after you're placed on a transitional work crew, like I said, you'll work up to four days. Uh, but you'll come in on what we call an appointment day to meet with uh, Mr. Sean Laster, uh, who is our job coach. Uh, he's working with individuals to identify any personal or professional barriers to their employment, uh, how to answer the conviction question, what do your resume look like, uh, do you have housing, do you need transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, and then once uh, we've labeled you as somebody who's ready to go to work, uh, you will then work with that business accounts manager, Mr. Antoine Mango, uh, who will then work with you to get you placed uh, at our employer partners. 
Uh, and then from there, last and certainly not least, is uh, our retention services, uh, which we continue to follow with our participants to make sure that they are staying engaged uh, with the label market. Uh, and I also like to say, Rose, we've coined this term uh, here at CEO Atlanta, uh, one CEO, always CEO. Uh, and that means that they lose their job. Uh, we want them to come back and we can place them back on a transitional work crew or we get them back in the hands of that job coach or that business accounts manager uh, to help them address any needs that they may have. Julie, this formula, this phase, these phases that Michael just took all of us through, and, you, mm-hmm. uh, and I imagine y'all have used this in, in other parts of the nation, yes. the, the, the effectiveness of this and, and what you want to say, personal stories you can share to our listeners about what this program means to so many people. So many people, so many people. The Greenlight Fund has invested in CEO in Detroit, Cincinnati, Charlotte, and Philadelphia. So we knew that this was a replicatable model that could immediately add value in Metro Atlanta. And you know what it means is you know the number one barrier for those coming home from incarceration is finding a job. Until you get a job that's and you're not going to get a job that pays you every single day everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so that is what CEO offers. And I get excited because there are other things because it is a large established organization that's been around since the 1970s. We have a match savings program. Mm-hmm. So part of that savings like when you get paid every day if you save part of that it's going to be matched dollar for dollar. So when you get your full-time employment, you've got a pot of money ready for you. In addition to that, they're credible messengers. So they're things that a large organization can bring to the table to really help returning citizens navigate this new world, this new normal called job search. Hmm. And so that is what's so exciting. And, uh, you know, the results are going to be phenomenal because this is a program that can truly serve hundreds hundreds of returning citizens, men and women, but it's all dependent upon the employer partners that we get who truly believe in second chances. And so when we see all the opportunities out there in terms of labor force and, and needs and dependability, CEO brings that to the table. So if we've got any second chance employers out there who are having any challenges in getting a labor force, we've got one ready for you. And the returning citizens are on CEO's payroll. So let's talk about that because do you have to I don't want to put it like this, sell the program, but what questions do you get from your partners, your employee par- employer partners that they have? What Do you have to give them reassurances? Michael, I'll let you take that one. Uh, yes. Uh, believe it or not, Rose, um, now some people question uh, working with uh, those who are coming home from prison, mm-hmm. uh, but a lot of times employers uh, won't. And, and we focus our core principles around these five things. Uh, but most employers want to know, uh, are they going to show up on time? Uh, can they cooperate with supervisors? Can they cooperate with their coworkers? Uh, what does their work effort is like? Uh, and more importantly, you know, are they are they presentable? How do they present themselves? Well, that's what anybody that's going to get a job, I would think. Well, I'm just saying. <laughs> right, and I agree. Uh, that, and that's, that's our message. You know, although they're coming home from prison, these are people uh, who can make some of the best employees uh, we found that their um, people coming home from prison are very loyal roles. Uh, they're good for advancement. Uh, and oftentimes they make some of the very best employees. I don't know anyone, uh, excuse me, uh, I hope not, who wakes up, you know, just looking to go commit a crime at work. Most people are just looking to support themselves and their families. Like you and I. I want to talk about, I want to continue this conversation as it relates to, to stigma. We've had these conversations on this program before just in terms of language language that we as journalists use, language that folks as writers, we've had to change, and we should have changed that, to be to be honest. But there's still this stigma. And so, Jolie, when you all are seeking your funding, 
And are you focusing on telling folks, look, you know, this is all part of what, quote unquote, the American dream is supposed to be about. Right. So do you have to also educate people about stigma attached to those who are formerly incarcerated? I think so. I think so. And, you know, and the onus is on us whether it be you know, mental health in the black community or returning citizens, the onus is on us, but we have a story to tell. And as Michael said, you know, those coming home from incarceration are motivated, they're employable, they're great employees. So you, it's, it's very difficult to fathom a labor shortage when we've got labor ready and available for you, but they're always stigmas, you know, and, and that is human nature, but that's okay. If we've got a credible story and facts to back it up and more importantly, employees to deliver, it's okay. Well, Jolie, you get the money question. How how are you all funded primarily? So I have an I Greenlight Fund. We have a very generous investor coalition that includes private donors and uh, you know family foundations, uh, United Way, Community Foundation, and so we have about five and a half million dollars working capital. And I make one investment per year, and so we will give CEO six hundred thousand dollars startup capital, and that was our first investment. And we'll be selecting our second investment actually next week. But in the space, we're either just going to decide between a model around universal basic income or a model around uh, learning interruption. So we'll let you know. Does that amount? Does it limit? at all how many folks you all can help or bring into the initiative? That's a great question. We look to invest in organizations that have earned, well, have diverse funding streams. And so CEO in particular, the vast majority of their funding comes from earned income. So the transitional work crews that Michael mentioned, they are a staffing agency, so mm-hmm. very competitively priced staffing agency. So money comes from, you know, SNAP ENT, but also vast majority from um, earned income. And, and Michael, what are you hearing from? And I know you're, you're the just the ATL, not just the ATL site director, but what are you hearing from folks already about this program? And and are there some resources and needs that you all just can't provide right now? Uh, yes, uh, definitely been hearing that CEO Atlanta is needed. Uh, as we talked about earlier, we have so many people coming to this area, uh, returning. Uh, and I and Rose, I try not to say returning home. Uh, because everyone don't have a home to return to. Mm-hmm. So I'll just say we have so many people returning to this area who needs our help. Uh, we know employment can be a stabilizer, uh, but I think I would be arrogant uh, in saying that employment is the only thing that they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I mentioned the comprehensive piece of our program as well, because we try to provide those wraparound services. Uh, if there's any substance abuse, if there's any mental illness, do you need housing, do you need transportation? Uh, there's so many different things that they need. Uh, so we do uh, the best job that we can uh, with partnering with local uh, partners, uh, local community stakeholders to provide those services uh, that we can provide uh, in terms of um, things outside of employment. And is there a particular sector or, or workforce industry that you all are hearing that folks need need to be folks need to be hired in? What are you hearing? Uh, Yes. So um, I think just generally across the country uh, and just here locally, you see a lot of uh, opportunities in construction. Um, But we're uh, very open minded in the sense of trying to always introduce uh, our participants to new skills. Uh, So as CEO, we say yes uh, in terms of the work, as long as it's safe uh, and we can prove that it can be done, uh, you know, in a reasonable manner uh, in terms of our participant and based on their skill level, uh, then we go forward. Uh, So, Rose, I don't want to say any industry in particular, because Mm -hmm. right now uh, we want to keep an open door policy and make anyone feel welcome, no matter what industry they're in, as long as they're uh, willing to consider those uh, coming home from prison. 
And Jolie, we are still in a pandemic, and I'm curious how all of this has it has it if, how it has affected you all and the work that you've been doing in the cities throughout the nation. And what how have you all had to to shift? We've been using that word since last year. Mm-hmm. How have you all had to Absolutely. shift and, and adjust to all this? You know, great question. You know, we have a selection advisory council that helps guide our investment selection decisions, and we have been meeting virtually. You know, it it is a process that's designed to be in person, but the need without question is going to be more pronounced, it's going to be greater and more immediate. And so we recommitted to the fact that we must continue this work. It's not optimal virtually, but it definitely works. And And are you all able to help folks if there are certain certifications that they may want to receive or or even, you know, some additional uh, education opportunities. Are you all able to help in that regard? Uh, Yes, we are. Uh, So one thing I'll mention, uh, we have an internal uh, program that we like to use uh, called the uh, Network for Employment Training, uh, our uh, Employment Services and Training, excuse me, our NEST program that's for participants. uh, And they have some self-paced, self-learning opportunities on there. Uh, One certification uh, that that comes to mind is like your OSHA 10 certification or utility flagger certification. Uh, And even once they completed the programs in terms of being on the transitional work crew and have been placed, uh, they decide that they want to go back to school and continue their education. Uh, We even have uh, scholarships for them in which we help with funding. Uh, And even uh, there are even times in which we will offer incentives in forms of uh, money uh, and other different things to really uh, encourage them to continue their learning. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, internal uh, resources, and we also are open, you know, to connecting them to external resources as well. And from a demographic standpoint, what about for those who are Spanish speaking, Spanish speaking, and they need resources too? You all able to provide that? Uh, yes, uh, we're able to provide uh, resources to any demographic and uh, roles. That also just brings me to an interesting point too. Uh, for some reason, people think that our program is only for men. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you'll see a lot of men, uh, but not, you know, only in terms of race, but in gender as well. We want women to know uh, that the program is available to them as well. As we wrap up, when it, when we came into the segment and I gave you that statistic from that 2018 report, where do you all see reducing those numbers? Let's say in, in the next five years, Jolie, I'll start with you in terms of helping those who are formerly incarcerated and, as as Michael said, you know, returning citizens. Where do you hope all this will, will eventually lead to? We know it's not going to be overnight, but. Right, right. One, one thing I did want to mention, Rose, is that one thing that makes CEO special, comparatively speaking, is there is no past conviction that's taboo, regardless of what Um, crime you could have committed, you are welcome at CEO. And in terms of, you know, the desire, you know, numbers and percent, they're not people. You know, every single person we can help transition into the workforce and to financial stability and, you know, a solid home life, that is a win. I mean, ideally, we could say, oh, we'd like to reduce recidivism 10%, 20%. It doesn't matter. Every single person matters. Michael, I'll give you the last word. Yes, uh, I would just say I'm just tired of Georgia being in uh, last place in terms of our recidivism numbers. Uh, I wanted to see Georgia be a better place uh, for just not anyone, but especially those coming home from prison. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done, uh, and I'm just happy to be part of the uh, solution as opposed to the problem. And again, if folks are interested, whether they know someone who needs the service or someone listening who needs the services, or they want to be on the other side and be a partner, how can they reach your organization? Yes. Uh, so first, I would like to uh, direct individuals to our website uh, at www.coworks.org. Uh, 
Uh, and if you want to reach us here in the Atlanta office, we have a general email that we use. Uh, it comes to myself as well as my entire team. Uh, and that email is referralsatlanta at ceoworks.org. Again, referralsatlanta at ceoworks.org. And we'll have that information on our website as well. ATL side director Michael Taylor, also Jolie C. Cooper, executive director of the Greenlight Fund Atlanta, and they're in partnership now with a multi-year investment in the Center for Employment Opportunities, CEO, with a focus on reaching support services for job seekers with past convictions. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation, good information. Yes, thank, thank you so you. much for the opportunity. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And as always, if you missed any part of today's show, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Thanks to everyone who sent me their gelato favorites via email from yesterday's segment. I tell you, y'all are on it. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.